Welcome to Evidence-Based Radio. As always, you can find me throughout the week at the Facebook page, and you can find this and previous shows as a podcast on your favorite podcatcher or via the website evidencebasederrata.com. They usually go up on Sunday, um, but your mileage may vary. Um, So last week, I ended up by talking about plant domestication, um, some of the more interesting plant domestication rather than just uh, sort of the things that we know came out of the Fertile Crescent, kind of wheat and rice and things like that, Um, because there's a lot of other things that have been domesticated. And um, I made a kind of an aside that I couldn't remember exactly what um, the actual... Uh, connections were. So I just want to uh, iterate, reiterate about um, the wild mustard. So um, if you were listening last week, I said something about how, you know, many of the commercial products that we find in the grocery store today all come from wild, wild mustard. And it actually is true that um, cabbage, Brussels sprouts, broccoli, cauliflower, and a couple of other things, I think maybe kohlrabi, um, but definitely uh, those four all come from the same initial wild mustard. Um, So yeah, we have done a lot of uh, massaging of plants in order to uh, create things that we like and that we want to eat. Um, I'm a big fan of broccoli, for instance, and um, I've become a much uh, better appreciator of Brussels sprouts as I've grown up. And uh, so yeah. All right. But I did also note that we would start tonight by talking about the domestication of various animals that we still use today as livestock. And so um, this is a new study about how um, pastoralism sort of flowed into the African continent. And it also has a couple of lessons about sort of issues with research that we still need to work on uh, at this moment. So, of course, they were first domesticated in that sort of fertile crescent Middle East area between the Tigris and the Euphrates, most of these cows and sheep and goats and things. Um, But by at least 8,000 years ago, they were already present in Egypt. By 5,000 years ago, herders were present in Kenya. And by 2,000 years ago, livestock herds had reached South Africa. And so researchers, including Mary Pendergrass, professor of archaeology at the St. Louis University in Madrid, and Elizabeth Sawchuk, a postdoctoral fellow and research assistant professor of anthropology at Stony Brook University, are studying African populations to discover just how domesticated animals spread throughout the continent. And so one of the problems, though, and this is what I wanted to talk about in part, with studying the dispersal of domestication into Africa is the issue of genetic databases. So the researchers had to collaborate with curators, archaeologists, and geneticists to expand the database of genetic sequences for ancient African remains. Now, of course, it might seem odd, uh, considering that Africa is the cradle of uh, civilization and humanity, or the the cradle of humanity, at least. Um, And uh, so you would think we would have more DNA sequences from Africa. 
But of course, a lot of the remains that we have from Africa are too old to recover DNA from. And also, let's be frank, uh, a lot of science has a very um, Western European um, bent to it. And that, um, you know, we've we've talked about this before. Um, for instance, the story that I talked about a few months ago, I think, um, about pelvic um, architecture. And so it was just assumed that everybody had, that all women had the same kind of pelvis that uh, the women that these people had studied did. And of course, they were studying Northern European women. Um, and when they actually went and looked at the pelvises of other women from other regions of the world, um, from other eth ethnic by backgrounds, they found that lo and behold, there was actually quite a variety of pelvic architecture. And so again, we have to continually remember that a lot of this science is slanted towards, uh, you know, the sort of American, European, um, first world kind of um, uh, collection of people and of the things that those people are interested in. And so that's, you know, a big problem in pretty much all of science, um, but especially also in medicine um, here in the US. Um, a lot of medicine is based on kind of um, participants who are generally young and white, um, especially. Um, I mean, there's a whole problem. I don't want to get into this because it's a whole rabbit hole. Um, there's a whole problem about psychology that most psychology studies are done on college age students, um, which are predominantly white, are predominantly um, you know, of, in a lot of places, uh, you know, slightly upper class. Um, and so that's a whole problem. But psychology has a complete and utter issue uh, itself in other in so many other ways, we could do a whole show on uh, the problems with psychology right now. I don't think that it necessarily means that psychology isn't real or important. Um, but they do have some real soul searching to do in that uh, particular field. But let's get back to genetics, because at least genetics is a little more uh, sort of easily uh, can claim to be evidence based because, you know, when you see a gene sequence, it pretty much is what it is. And so, um, again, what they had to do was they had to get more samples uh, because African DNA sequences at the time made up just a tiny fraction of the overall genetic sequences that were available in uh, databases that researchers have access to. Just 3% of all sequences come from Africa compared to nearly two-thirds of the whole coming from European sources. Um, and so this is for ancient DNA, remember, so it wouldn't be, the American sources would be Native American, and of course they're very smallly represented um, as are the Africans. So of course the researchers had to go directly to the source. They were lucky to be able to find people who were able to give them um, access to remains so that they could get DNA sequences. So they were able to sequence the DNA of 41 people from Kenya and Tanzania. And this more than doubled the number of ancient individuals with genome-wide data from sub-Saharan Africa. Um, because, of course, you know, there's probably fair, a fair amount of Egyptians in the databases, um, and so, yeah, now they were able to get a radiocarbon date for 35 of the remains, and that allowed them to use context clues, artifacts and food remains, as well as traditions to sort out whether the people were foragers, pastoralists or farmers. 
They then compared the DNA sequences to hundreds of living people from areas across Africa and the Middle East. Now, gaps definitely remain due to, again, the dismal state of the data pool, but there were some genetic groups that could be traced to modern ancestors. And so what they were able to piece together from um, all of the sort of different strands of data that they were actually able to gather was that it was a general story that arises in uh, of herding spreading in stages, which makes a lot of sense. Um, You know, it's not just someone walking a herd of cattle from one end of the continent to the next in kind of a continuous stream. Um, It makes sense that people would, you know, settle somewhere and then someone else would move somewhere else. Um, And so the initial steps involved what the researchers refer to as a ghost population, for which they don't yet have any direct genetic evidence. And so these people would have shared half of their ancestries from those who lived in the Middle East or northern or northeastern Africa, uh, from where the DNA is also absent at the moment. And the other half of their ancestry would have been from um, people in um, Sudan, so the Sudanese people. Now, they would have moved into sub-Saharan Africa and integrated with foragers already living in East Africa. And so this first wave of dispersal would have been from around 4,500 to 3,500 years ago. And so at this point, the herders stopped exchanging genetic flow for the most part with foragers. And so there's not really a good way to tell why that happened. Um, Of course, a lot of this is very much a problem of trying to piece things together in a, um, you know, in a very after the fact fashion. There's a lot of uh, conjecture always in these things. So we're never telling a complete story. And so um, the researchers suggest that they may have developed social barriers to integration Or it may have been that the amount of foragers might have sufficiently declined to make exchange between the two groups unlikely. Um, They may have also moved away um, because they didn't want to interact with these new weird people who were herders. Um, And maybe the the herds were getting in the way of their um, places that they had done foraging before. And so around 1,200 years ago, a second wave of people more closely related to the modern Sudanese and also to West African groups, arrived with early ironworking and farming. Now, this area then became a mosaic of farmers, herders, and foragers, and actually remains so up to the modern day. Now, it's unclear, for instance, if these early pastoralists drank milk. Um, Only one of the ancient samples contained the genetic variant that allows for easy digestion of milk or lactose into adulthood, despite the fact that this variant is widespread in modern populations from the area. Um, So a lot of people, um, a lot of the Maasai, for instance, are able to actually drink milk because they've been in such close contact with um, cows for such a long period of time um, that they've they've been able to sort of develop that, um, you know, they've people who were able to uh, metabolize milk into adulthood had a better survival rate. And so um, it's become much more widespread. In other parts of Africa, it's very rare. Um, you know, the pretty much the only places, only other places that have um, this, this genetic variant 
in most of the population is in Northern Europe. And then, of course, people in the United States who are descended from those people. Um, I'm pretty sure those are only the kind of two pockets where it's actually very common. Uh, Much of Asia is not, um, doesn't have that variant. And um, I don't think that many Native American populations, I can't imagine that they would have because they didn't uh, generally come in contact with cattle uh, so much as other animals. So it's really just kind of Northern Europe and then uh, this area of Africa where there is a very long standing tradition of herding and uh, pastoralism. So um, The other thing that they might have done instead was ingested fermented milk, which a lot of people still do um, in the Middle East, in uh, Africa, in other places as well, um, or yogurt to avoid the issues of lactose intolerance. Um, And so on another interesting note, archaeologists had actually previously identified two distinct cultural traditions of herders in the area of Kenya and Tanzania by their different pottery styles, stone tool sources, settlement patterns, and burial practices. But despite the fact that they were very much culturally different, they were genetically almost identical. Um, And so this is another big issue um, or another big thing to uh, talk about when it comes to a lot of archaeological stuff. And so there's a phrase that the authors note from archaeology, uh, which is often used, which is the phrase, pots are not people. And so this is a reminder that two different groups may be culturally distinct, but closely related genetically. Um, And so if you think about, you know, in modern countries, because we've made these arbitrary, uh, you know, lines between each other, you can have people who have a very different culture, but who are very similar uh, genetically, because the only reason that they're different is because a line was drawn around them at some point in the uh, in historical uh, memory. And so, of course, uh, There is one of our favorite topics, uh, a twist that might seem old hat to regular listeners, uh, which is that the researchers were able to discover, uh, among all the other things they were doing, an interesting fact based on the remains, on a set of remains that had been sitting on a shelf in a museum uh, that had been there since the 1960s. Uh, Two fragmentary human skulls from Predator John's Gully in uh, the Rift Valley proved to be 4,000-year-old burials and the oldest DNA sequence from Kenya yet discovered. And so this helped show that they were some of the earliest herders in East Africa and that several distinct genetic groups would have moved into the area over the centuries. Now, of course, these results don't answer all of the questions one might ask about these times and activities. It can't tell us why these pastoralists moved into the area at this time, um, or frankly, altogether. Um, It can't tell us what the clash of very different peoples was like, or what happened to those foragers who seemed to have mostly vanished from the genetic population. Were they outcompeted? Were they the losers in war between two different ways of life? Did they move and are present in current populations for which we just haven't yet registered any modern DNA sequences? 
Despite not having all of the answers, one of the things the authors hope to do is to give more insight into ancient practices to aid those still living in the area who are facing new pressures like climate change, urban sprawl, and land conflict. And so, again, this is one of those places where we're trying to kind of look backward in order to help those who are moving forward. And um, so this is a big issue. And I think that we have to be really cognizant of the fact that this is an ancient way of life, but those can be very easily supplanted um, by urban sprawl, by climate change. Um, You know, when you have a very traditional way of life, you don't have a lot of fallback options. Um, It's not like you can just go to the store and get food if your crops fail. Um, And of course, that's not unique to uh, people in Africa. And of course, there are many places in Africa. um, I always just like to remind people that there are many places in Africa that are actually quite wealthy, uh, quite industrial, quite, um, you know, doing just fine for themselves. Um, I know that we sometimes have this tendency to think of Africa as a monolithic, uh, of Africa as an entity. Um, It is not, it is a continent. um, And on that continent are many, many, many various people who have very different lived life experiences, very different, some of them very different genetics, some of them, uh, you know, very, very uh, different in pretty much every way, shape, and form to other people who may be close to them or far away from them on the continent. Uh, remember, Africa is also huge. Um, you know, our, our modern maps tend to make it look smaller than it is. Um, if you've ever seen the, the famous, uh, there's a bunch of famous images of when you put other countries into Africa. So you can put like China, the USSR or Russia now, uh, excuse me. Um, and, uh, you know, the United States and a whole bunch of other things into Africa, because it is bigger than all of these other, uh, things that we think of potentially as being the same size or even bigger. Um, and so Africa is a vast land filled with many people, uh, some of them absolutely living, uh, lives of abject poverty, um, some of them living lives of hunter-gatherers, but doing, you know, just fine for hunter-gatherers, some of them torn, living in war-torn areas, um, and some of them living in modern cities that would be just as easy to uh, transplant into Europe or um, America, and you would not be able to tell the difference. Um, For instance, I don't know where it is. Um, I'll have to remember to update uh, you next week on it, but there's this amazing building um, in one of the cities. Um, It might be in Kenya, but there's this amazing building that was built with the technology, um, they what they did was they looked at termite mounds and they figured out how termite mounds maintain a specific kind of um, resting temperature. So they always have kind of a stable temperature. It's never too cold. It's never too hot. Um, and they do that through having um, kind of a chimney where the air kind of comes out of the chimney and then there's some holes in the bottom. Um, so they get a kind of a continuous airflow that keeps the temperature uh, relatively stable. And so they actually built this amazing, um, I think it's a mall, but you know, that's fine. Um, this amazing building where it uses those same techniques and they basically don't have to have any air conditioning. They don't have to waste all of that, um, time on 
dealing with cooling the place, um, you know, the, all of that power that they would otherwise have to put into, they, they just don't need it because they're able to um, have this constant um, breeze. I think they do have to use fans, but it's still much easier than um, using air conditioning and things like that. And also it's just a really cool looking building. Um, so I will try and remember to um, post some pictures of it on Facebook. And then I will also try and remember to just put a note um, in next week's um, show so that if you want to look into it more, you can. Okay. Uh, that seems like a long enough digression. <laughs> um, let us get back to uh, what I was actually talking about tonight. And so this is another, we're going to stay with archaeology for um, a fair amount of the night, just because there seem to be some really cool archaeological stories this week. And so uh, we are going to move north now and um, about a little further back in time, actually. Um, we're going to go back to the uh, kind of last ice age. So we're actually going back in time a little bit now. Um, and so this is a new discovery in Siberia. Two milk teeth were recently found in a site called the Yana rhinoceros horn site in Russia. And they have been linked to a new group of ancient people who inhabited the area during the last ice age around 31,000 years ago. So, you know, kind of a quite a bit further back in time. Now, the teeth were described as part of a larger study, which also described 10,000-year-old remains from another site, which represent the first example of human remains found outside of the Americas that are genetically closely related to Native American populations. And so an international team led by Professor Eski Will, uh, Viverslev of St. John's College at the University of Cambridge, and who is also the director of the Ludbeck Foundation Center for Geogenetics at the University of Copenhagen, uh, have described the finds. And so the population represented by the teeth have been dubbed ancient North Siberians. And the team states that they are a significant part of human history. The Yana Rhinoceros Horn Site, or RHS, was first excavated in 2001, and more than 2,500 artifacts, including animal bones, ivory, stone tools, and other signs of human activity have been recovered from the site so far. But the only human remains are those two small milk teeth. Of course, luckily for researchers, teeth are actually one of the best things to find because they are the most likely to retain reservoirs of ancient DNA. Um, and so obviously DNA kind of has a half-life. Um, so the further back you go, the harder it is to recover DNA from ancient uh, remains, which is why a lot of those African remains, there's just no way to get any kind of DNA from them because they're so ancient that the DNA has all degraded and is not even present for the most part anymore. A lot of those are actually fossils. Um, and so uh, teeth, though, are actually one of the kind of the best places to then find DNA. So it's very exciting that they actually found teeth. And of course, uh, teeth are fairly durable, so they do tend to survive pretty well. Um, we have a lot of ancient uh, teeth, which is a little bit weird, but also um, actually quite good for uh, researchers. 
because you can actually learn a lot from teeth. Um, you can do radioisotope. Um, in, you can take radioisotope uh, data from them, and you can often tell um, from a tooth where a person grew up um, because the water that they drink and the food that they ingest have certain um, profiles of uh, radioactive chemicals that then accumulate in the teeth. Um, so teeth are actually one of the best uh, things to find if you want to actually get real data out of some form of uh, ancient or even less ancient. Um, they actually, I think, have done that for people who are in, um, you know, very, very um, sort of unsolved mysteries where people have no idea where someone is from or who they are. Um, sometimes they'll do analysis of the teeth to try and get a better idea of where they might have come from. But anyways, let's get back to ancient times. So these people uh, would have actually endured pretty uh, harsh conditions. Um, you know, this was the end of the last ice age, and uh, they would have survived by hunting woolly mammoths, woolly rhinoceroses, hence the rhinoceros uh, site, and bison. And so Professor Villerslev uh, notes that these people were a significant part of human history. They diversified almost at the same time as the ancestors of modern-day Asians and Europeans, and it's likely that at one point they occupied large regions of the Northern Hemisphere. The group most likely consisted of around 400 people at the site, with a wider population at the time of around 500. The two individuals show no sign of in of inbreeding, which was actually a problem for the Neanderthal populations at the same time period. Um, they were starting to decline, and so they were starting to have inbreeding, um, but these uh, two teeth don't seem to show anything like that. Dr. Martin Sikora of the Ludbeck Foundation and first author of the study added, they adapted to extreme environments very quickly and were highly mobile. These findings have changed a lot of what we thought we knew about the population history of northeastern Siberia, but also what we know about the history of human migration as a whole. And so it turns out that these people were more closely related to Europeans than Asians and seemingly migrated from Western Eurasia soon after the genetic divergence between Europeans and Asians. These people are at the root of a genetic mosaic found in contemporary populations in northern Eurasia and the Americas, and thus fill in a missing genetic ancestor to Native American populations. This link to Native Americans was actually found in the DNA of a 10,000-year-old man from a site near the Kolma, uh, the Kolma River in Siberia. And he had a mixture of DNA from the ancient northern Siberians and East Asian DNA, similar to that found in Native American populations. Professor Vilislev uh, added that the remains are genetically very close to the ancestors of Paleo-Siberian speakers and close to the ancestors of Native Americans. It is an important piece in the puzzle of understanding the ancestry of Native Americans, as you can see the Kolmia uh, signature in the Native Americans and Paleo-Siberians. This individual is the missing link of Native American ancestry. 
Now, I hate that phrase missing link, but um, in this case, it's kind of actually visually, uh, it's more the visual of it's actually linking these two uh, genetic lineages together. Um, you know, I often very much hate that uh, term when it's used, for instance, in evolutionary terms, uh, specifically about animals being, you know, the missing link between two other animals. It's like, mm, that's not how it works. But here it's about genetics. I'll, I'll let it pass a little bit more, but I do always like to remind people that better phrases uh, can be used because that particular one is uh, a little bit fraught. So anyways, uh, <laughs> yeah, so that's actually really interesting. So again, this is this is something that keeps happening, it seems. Um, I feel like we're just going to keep finding different weird, uh, not weird, but different new and un, uh, previously unknown genetic lineages in Siberia for like forever um, because this is like the third one um, that they found in recent memory. Um, so stay tuned. We might come back to this very same uh, subject again because, yeah, um, you know, the Denisovians and then there was another uh, slightly different um, kind of Denisovian that they found, which was genetically distinct enough to be like an actual, you know, headline. And now uh, these uh, paleo Siberians, and it's just, it's kind of crazy. Um, all right. But it is that time when we should be taking a break uh, for some PSAs and some show promos. So uh, we are going to come back once that is done and talk about the Shan uh, Terracotta Warriors, which is something that I've been interested in basically since I was a little kid. Um, and so there's a new um, study about an aspect of their weaponry. So do stay tuned for that coming up right after some PSAs. Hi, I'm Charlie. I fight fires and I save lives. My name's Renee. I'm a cardiologist. I save lives. My name's Anthony. I'm an EMT. I save lives. You don't have to be a professional to save a life. Firefighters, doctors, and others save lives. You can, too. Don't wait. To learn more about the warning signs and how you can help prevent suicide, visit save.org. In a crisis, call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-TALK. Alcohol poisoning is caused by binge drinking large quantities of alcohol in a short period of time. Very high levels of alcohol in the body can shut down critical areas of the brain that control breathing, heart rate, and body temperature, resulting in death. Alcohol poisoning deaths affect people of all ages, but are most common among middle-aged adults. In the United States, an average of six people die every day from alcohol poisoning. Most of the deaths are among men. States and communities can support proven programs and policies to prevent binge drinking. Healthcare providers can screen all adult patients for binge drinking and counsel those who do to drink less. Don't binge drink. If you choose to drink, do so in moderation. Up to one drink a day for women or two drinks a day for men. To learn more, visit cdc.gov slash vital signs. My name is Amanda Messer. I'm 17 years old and I'm a student from Turner's Falls High School. Billboard Bodies. Does anybody really look like that? Someone could be flipping through a magazine, looking at that pretty girl or that buffed out guy, then go gag themselves. We need to love our looks for what they are, other than what people say they need to be. People can have beauty no matter what they look like. Beauty only comes from the, from the heart, soul, and mind. 
Most magazines emphasize the outside when it's the inside that really matters. And change in society would be most ideal for everyone. Classical music on Valley Free Radio. Tune in to Andy Musique Wednesday mornings at 7 a.m. for an hour of beautiful music to start your day. Hosted by Lucy and Larry. Hey, it's D.O. from The Enviro Show, which is the Valley's only local radio show devoted solely to environmental issues right here on WXOJLP Valley Free Radio. That's right, and I'm Glenn reminding you that we're at 103.3 FM and streaming live at valleyfreeradio.org every Tuesday from 6 to 7 p.m. And not so live on Thursdays at 2. And since it's the end of the world as we know it, why not spend your last hour with us? Exactly. We will help you cope with the end of the world without resorting to drugs or Facebook, even though we are on Facebook. And online at enviroshow.wordpress.org Remember, Tuesdays at 6pm and Thursdays at 2pm, got it? Yes! Hello, this is John Hodgman, resident expert for The Daily Show with John Stewart and author of More Information Than You Require speaking into a small machine representing WXOJLP Northampton Valley Free Radio found on your radio dial at 103.3 frequency modulation that is all and we are back um so yeah we are going to talk about uh the xian terracotta warriors now if you've never heard of them before you should definitely go and look them up after the show is finished because they're completely amazing um it is this just huge uh funerary complex for um uh for Qian uh, Shi Huang, uh, who lived between 259 and 210 BCE. Uh, and so this is his, you know, giant tomb that was created to kind of uh, usher him into the next life. And uh, it kind of makes some of the pyramids look like small potatoes, frankly, Um you know, we think about the uh, Egyptians as having done all of this amazing work to uh, usher people into the next life, but this is this is on another this is on a whole other scale. Um, and so he is credited as the first emperor uh, to rule over a united China. So you know he was kind of a big deal. <laughs> and so um, so far, over two thousand warriors have been excavated, and each of them is actually an individual. Uh, they all have different facial features. Many of them have slightly different uniforms. Um, they're just they're very much individualized. And if you think about that. Uh, it becomes even more mind-blowing when you realize that several thousand more remain between the excavated trenches. And so one of the general rules of modern archaeology is that you, uh, you don't always, you never excavate everything um, in a particular space. And so you always want to leave parts of the dig unexcavated because future archaeologists will almost certainly have better tools and practices in the future and excavation is an inherently destructive process. 
Even if you're extremely careful and you're able to properly preserve the artifacts that are excavated, you are still taking them from their original context. And so, for instance, that's one of the huge problems with um, the trafficking of antiquities and of um, fossils as well. It's a huge problem with fossils is that once you remove something from the earth, you can never get back the information about that particular spot um, unless you have carefully detailed it at that moment. Um, and so when you buy a fossil in a fossil shop, it's pretty, but you know, the reason it's now in a fossil shop is because it's basically, it, it's not useful anymore in a scientific kind of situation because without the, um, without the description of where it came from, what layer it was in, uh, what was around it, all of these things, without that information, it's just, it's just a pretty thing. Um, it's not anything that has any value to anyone. Um, and that's why, you know, over the years, I've, I've, you know, I have a couple of ammonites um, that I got with something else, but I don't generally, even though I love collecting rocks, I don't generally ever buy any, um, any fossils because I just it just seems such a sad waste um, even though some of them are very beautiful and you know I'm not opposed to other people doing it it's just my personal philosophy on the subject but anyways <laughs> getting back to archaeology again um, same thing you know if you uh, take something out of the ground you never get back that original uh, context unless you've carefully documented it and even then again future generations will probably have better tools better abilities to have gotten initial information and so you always want to leave places undisturbed um, you can never you know relocate things in the same layer of soil uh, or in the same exact position usually that soil is actually put through a sieve uh, in order to screen it for small objects so if you've ever seen uh, any uh, video or a tv show where people are doing archaeological research usually when they pull out the um, you know, they're pulling out buckets of soil to uncover things and all of those buckets get kind of uh, dumped over what is essentially usually just a kind of a frame with um, almost basically just um, window screening and it's shaken so that the uh, soil falls through and, and then if there's anything in there. So it's all being very much mixed up, very much, uh, you know, taken out of its original context. Now, of course, it doesn't mean that we should stop excavating ancient sites. It's important, though, to remember um, that leaving areas for future researchers is essential. So getting back to the specifics of the uh, terracotta warriors, not only are the warriors full-sized uh, terracotta sculptures, as I mentioned, they are equipped with fully functional weapons, primarily made of bronze, which include spears, lances, hooks, swords, crossbow triggers. Of course, the rust of the crossbow would most likely have been made of wood, which didn't likely get preserved, um, or didn't get preserved, I should say. And just in the excavated part of the site, nearly 40,000 arrowheads. So again, the shafts would have been made of wood, and the wood has since rotted away. But the preservation of the bronze, unlike the wood, is remarkably good. Many display shiny surfaces and sharp edges that mimic a newly constructed weapon. And so researchers have long argued that the state of preservation must have been due to a purposeful addition of chemistry by the uh, Qin era weapon makers. 
And so traces of chromium detected on the surface of the weapons helped to suggest that the craftspeople invented a version of chromate conversion coating, uh, comparable to sort of modern chrome plating, uh, which of course was not patented until the early 20th century. Some of the bronze weapons, particularly swords, lances, and halberds, display shiny, almost pristine surfaces and sharp blades after 2,000 years buried with the terracotta army, said Dr. Xiu Zhen Li, a researcher in the Institute of Archaeology at University College London in the UK, and the Emperor Qin Shi uh, Huang's uh, Mausoleum Site Museum in China. One hypothesis for this was that Qin weapon makers could have utilized some kind of anti-rust technology due to chromium detected on the surface of the weapons. However, the preservation of the weapons has continued to perplex scientists for more than 40 years. Now, new research by Dr. Lee and colleagues now suggests that the chromium found on these weapons is actually contamination from lacquer that was originally found on objects adjacent to the weaponry rather than an ancient technological breakthrough. They suggest that rather than a technological solution, the preservation is simply the result of the composition of the surrounding soil. The soils have a moderately alkaline pH, small particle size, and low organic content. Um, so just a, and as an aside, because I was having a conversation about this with someone uh, recently, and people don't really remember uh, all the time about this, organic actually means containing carbon. Um, and so things that don't contain carbon aren't organic, even if they are natural. Um, so that's a difference there. Um, not everything that's in nature is organic. Um, organic is a very specific thing. Um, and so, of course, again, this doesn't rule out a technical solution. It just makes it less likely, um, highly less likely, unfortunately. Uh, so the high tin composition of the bronze, quenching techniques, and the particular nature of the local soil go some way to explain their remarkable preservation. But it is still possible that the Kin dynasty developed a mysterious technological process, and this dirt deserves further investigation, Dr. Lee said. Now, many of the best preserved weapons, however, did not have any surface chromium. In order to arrive at the idea of the soil being an important factor, the researchers compared weapons placed in environmental chambers buried in either soil from the Xi'an uh, burial site or soil from um, Britain. They found that after four months of extreme temperature and humidity, the items buried in the Xi'an soil retained its surface pretty much uh, pristinely, while the buried, while that buried in the British soil had suffered severe corrosion. It is striking how many important detailed insights can be recovered via the evidence of both the natural materials and complex artificial recipes found across the mausoleum complex. Bronze, clay, wood, lacquer, and pigments, to name but a few, said Professor Andrew Bevan, also from the Institute of Archaeology at the University College London. These materials provide complementary storylines in a bigger tale of craft production strategies at the dawn of China's first empire. 
Now, again, it's important to remember that just because there may not have been some sort of technologically advanced coding on these weapons, that doesn't mean that these artifacts do not represent a huge technological achievement. Um, there's so many mind-blowing uh, achievements in this um, complex. And, uh, you know, there's a, there's a famous uh, National Geographic argument article from like 20 years ago about it um, that is still, you know, has great pictures, for instance. And, um, you know, it was back when National Geographic was still vaguely a uh, reputable um, <laughs> uh, publication. Not so much these days, but, um, you know, that's what you get when you get bought out by Rupert Murdoch. Um, but anyways, <laughs> um, and there've been some other great uh, discoveries over the years. And it's just, it's a mind blowing place. Um, there is a they created a river of mercury um, around the actual burial in order to create a sort of river effect. It's just, it, it's amazing. Um, and you should definitely look more into it. And so, yeah, um, for instance, uh, there's also, there was some questions about how they even created the terracotta warriors, which has uh, since been kind of uh, provisionally uh, figured out and things like that. So very cool. Um, and of course, this again reminds us that people in the ancient world were, as I am oft, uh, as I am oft willing to say, and uh, oft will try and tell you, I should say, um, uh, they were just as amazing and resourceful as people today. They just had less accumulated human knowledge to draw from, and of course, many things that the ancients may have known were actually lost during various so-called quote-unquote dark ages uh, where civilizations declined and were overrun by those less interested uh, in scientific and artistic endeavors. Um, and so, you know, there have kind of been ebbs and flows. Um, you know, uh, there, there's the famous um, sort of... Uh, it's 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 definitely conjecture, but basically about one percent of all of the knowledge that was contained in the uh, library at, at Alexandria was actually somewhere else and was and has reached us in the present. Um, so if you just think about that, that just one percent of what was at the Alexandrian Library, which was this repository of ancient knowledge, um, that was you know frankly burned to the ground by barbarians um you know and so it is uh, a harsh reality that there was a lot of things that ancient people knew about that people later on um forgot about and we had to relearn um you know some of it still stumps us to this day um you know we, we talked about recently a couple of uh shows ago about, you know, Roman concrete. Nobody knew how the heck the Romans made concrete that withstood 2000 years of being in a harbor, being constantly bombarded by waves. They didn't know how that happened until just recently. Um, Greek fire, for instance, um, which is kind of like napalm, but for a long time, nobody knew how they had made Greek fire. Um, and so, you know, we talk about sort of the progress that we've made, but I think it's really important to remember that uh, human knowledge ebbs and flows. And um, so, yeah, um, I do try and keep this show positive, but I do feel that we are kind of coming into one of those places where people are trying to make it ebb. Um, and so I think it's very important for us to continue to push uh, against that kind of um, dark age thinking. Um, and to continue to push to keep things 
uh, on a more uh, realistic and scientific um, standing. And also with the arts as well, because a lot of times those go hand in hand, that uh, when there's a rejection of knowledge, there's also a rejection of art. Um, and we've seen that in the last uh, couple of decades of people constantly, constantly questioning um, why we spend money on the arts. Um, and uh, there's actually, um, I haven't read it yet, so I don't want to talk too much about it, but there was an opinion piece recently where someone said um, that it should be, instead of STEM, it should be STEAM and include the arts in uh, that acronym because um, the arts should go hand in hand with science. And I think that's very true um, myself. And um, actually was over at the Smith Museum yesterday and they have a really interesting art um, exhibit on plastics. And of course, plastics are very fraught. Um, on Monday, I went to a talk about plastics that was actually really fascinating. Um, someone over at Polymer Sciences at UMass was talking about kind of how they're trying to develop better plastics. Um, you know, there's one uh, project that one of his uh, postdocs is working on, which is plastic that is uh, stable when exposed to uh uh, fresh water, but when exposed to seawater, it disintegrates. And um, the monomers that it uh, turns into, because um, it's, you know, plastic is a polymer and then it breaks down into monomers, that those um, can potentially be something that's actually edible to um, animals in the sea. And that would be pretty excellent. Um, so yeah, there's a lot going on. Um, but I do recommend the um, exhibit over at Smith. It is very interesting. Um, some very interesting conceptual pieces and it kind of really talks about uh how there's a lot of stuff that we're just throwing out there and um you know there is a real push and pill between um the enjoyment of a kind of 21st century lifestyle and the fact that a lot of that has some hidden consequences um but, you know, um, one of the other things that I always like to remind people, though, of while I'm sort of soapboxing here tonight, apparently, um, is to remember, though, that um, it's all well and good to do your personal bit, recycle, um, you know, reduce, reuse, recycle. But um, I always want to remind people that it's actually kind of a um, scam in some ways uh, that uh, corporations have kind of uh, turned us into feeling like we're the ones responsible. And in some ways we are because we consume the products that they uh, create. But uh, individuals reducing, reusing, and recycling is not going to solve the problem. Um, we need to solve the problem by holding giant corporations, holding governments, holding people who are really creating uh, the problem accountable. And it's great for us to do our part. But even if we all were reducing, reusing and recycling as much as we could, there is still going to be petrochemical companies out there pumping CO2 into the uh, atmosphere. And there's still going to be a lot of cows um, out there, even if we were to stop eating meat, the cows wouldn't just suddenly go away. Um, and so, um, yeah, it's, it's important to remember that we need to have systematic um, uh, information. We need to have systematic answers, not just uh, individualized answers. All right. So um, let's try and sneak in one more story. Um, actually, uh, 
This is a pretty long story. So um, we're going to save that for next week. So instead, uh, let's talk about something that I didn't really want to talk about because it's very frustrating um, and very upsetting. But um, let's talk about measles for a few minutes. Uh, We are now at over a thousand cases in the U.S. uh, as of now. And, um, you know, 1,000 of those cases probably were preventable. Maybe I would say at least 95% of those were um, avoidable. Sometimes people uh, are exposed to measles from other people um, in countries that don't have great access to the virus. And so they're going to get it um, because they're too young or they're immune compromised or something like that. Um, And so, you know, sometimes that happens, but really almost all of those could have been prevented by vaccination. And this is a big part of um, what I actually was just talking about, this sort of pushing us back towards a um, pre-scientific kind of world where we're not actually appreciating what we have been given in terms of, um, you know, the actual uh, wonders of modern science, which are things like um, uh, vaccines and antibiotics. Antibiotics is another big issue that we're having trouble with. Um, you know, that's not so much a pushing back against science as just a people not paying attention, people using them for uh, things they shouldn't be using them in livestock is a real huge problem. Um, you know, things like that. That's a little less about actually uh, being against modern science, but uh, people who refuse vaccines, that's a huge issue. Um, and that is very much clear cut an issue of rejecting science and rejecting modernity um, and trying to pull us back into the dark ages, um, so to speak, Um, because the dark ages weren't so dark. Let's be perfectly honest. There was a lot of things going on in Europe during the so-called dark ages that don't make them, you know, they weren't just people walking around uh, covered in mud and just grunting at one another, uh, which I think some people sort of think about when they think the, um, the dark ages. But, um, you know, there were still lettered people, there were still uh, monasteries and things like that, that were doing um, things, you know, there's a reason why we still have, um, you know, some of the ancient works is because they weren't completely destroyed uh, in the um, dark ages. But anyways, um, you know, this issue with um, alternative medicine, for instance, um, you know, I... I am torn because I want to support, um, you know, people who have indigenous, uh, you know, ways of doing things. I get that. Um, But a lot of, you know, the the uh, adoption of a lot of those um, uh, indigenous activities and indigenous um, healing ways by uh, white middle class women, uh, I don't support in any way, shape or form. Um, I think it's not only... um, terrible because of the health implications, but it's also just straight up cultural appropriation. And um, there's just no reason why you should be doing those sorts of things. Um, You know, if you come from a long line of Native American people who have always gone to a traditional healer, that's one thing. But if you're a white suburban woman who wants to go and uh, have time in a sweat lodge, just say no. Just no, no, 
no, no, no. Um, but anyways, <laughs> I have now, uh, gotten to the point where I should probably wrap up. Um, so that has been a little bit of soapboxing at the end of tonight. So, uh, that is definitely, uh, the views and opinions of myself. Um, and, uh, do stay tuned for civil politics. I will actually be making, um, I will actually be on tonight, uh, giving the sort of scientific and factual perspectives about, um, reproduction and, um, more more specifically about abortion so um if that's something of interest please do stay tuned and um i will be back next week to uh talk to you more about things that are more uh just interesting and fun rather than soapboxing hopefully so have a good night and uh, i will see you next week this show is part of the planet side productions network for more information please visit www.planetside.pro And thank you for listening.